You're listening to Women Awake Podcast with Amelia Travis, yoga teacher and wild child turned multi-six-figure business coach, writer, speaker, and spiritual warrior. Women Awake is an experiment in creating community through radical honesty. On this show, there's only two rules, show up and tell the truth. Each week, we share uncensored, truth-telling, shame-busting conversations with thought leaders, entrepreneurs, visionaries, and modern-day mystics, revealing their rise-to-thrive stories, current challenges, and sharing their most powerful tools for transformation, growth, and well-being. This is your place to let down your guard, open your heart, and remember that being human is a crazy, wild ride, but you don't have to do it alone. So lean in, beloved, because we are letting go of fear and walking tall towards our own radical awakening. Are you ready? Let's dive in. Welcome back, friends, to another episode of Women Awake Podcast. I'm so grateful to be meeting you in this space and especially grateful and excited to be sharing this space with an incredibly powerful uh, female thought leader today whose work has changed my life. My guest today is the author of the Warrior Goddess Training Series, The Warrior Heart Practice, a little book on big freedom, Awaken Your Inner Fire, and co-author of The Seven Secrets to Happy Healthy Relationships with Don Miguel Ruiz Jr., She's dedicated to inspiring depth, creativity, and joy by sharing the most potent tools from a variety of world traditions. My guest studied and taught extensively with Don Miguel Ruiz, author of The Four Agreements, someone I know many of you are familiar with, and she continues to teach with the Ruiz family. Raised in Southeast Asia, she's traveled the world from childhood and is continually inspired by the diversity and beauty of human expression and experience. She brings this open-hearted, inclusive worldview to her writings and teachings, which are a rich blend of Toltec wisdom, European shamanism, and Buddhism. My guest changed my life through her book, Warrior Goddess Training, and came to me in perfect divine timing as I was on my own path of awakening of the sacred feminine. And so I'm deeply moved and honored to welcome to the show, Heather Ash Amara. Thank you so much for being here. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me on your show. Okay, so Heather Ash, I um, had a profound spiritual awakening in fall of 2018 in which I realized that I had spent 33 years of my life worshiping the sky god in relationship with divine masculine um, really always, you know, a deep seeker, but that I had completely neglected the mother. And in this awakening, I was outdoors sitting around a bonfire, um, chanting and drumming with other women. And it was as though all of a sudden I remembered her and I started crying and I reached down for the earth and I just touched, I dug my fingers and toes into the, into the grass, into the soil. And I started apologizing. Um, and of course, <laughs> she didn't need the apology. It was like the welcoming embrace of just like, of course, darling. Yes. And now you're here. <laughs> and, yep. Um, and so your book, um, your earlier book, Warrior Goddess Training, came to me shortly after that experience, maybe within six months of that. And it was really um, 
helpful for me at the time because if you haven't had the chance, my dear read, uh, listeners, to, to read this book, um, it's a very practical guide to um, knowing yourself more and really embracing power as a woman. Um, and so I would love to know, has that been your calling all along? Or for you, was there a specific awakening to the feminine and, um, and to its place in your um, spiritual understanding or your spiritual way of being? Yeah, I had a, a really unusual upbringing. I was raised in Southeast Asia, and so I was exposed to a lot of different ways of worshiping and the sacred. And when I first came to the States, it was a real shock. I was like, wait a minute, what is wrong here? Because I felt disconnected. <laughs> I felt the people around me were disconnected, but I didn't have a name for what that was. And so my first kind of foray into getting my power was I went really big into politics and became an activist and marched for everything. And as part of that, I started taking feminist studies and women's studies in college. And that was when I started to go, okay, wait a minute. Like what I've learned around just the structures of women in relationship to men and men being in power, like that is all out of balance. And what happened is a couple years into being an activist, I realized I'm angry, all my friends are angry, nothing's changing. So I knew that there was something that needed to be adjusted. And that's when I started studying different spiritual traditions and really felt like I came home. I had a similar experience of, but mine was from in the library of checking out every book that I could find on feminist spirituality, the mother, the goddess, earth-based spiritualities and spending a summer with one of my best friends just reading. And that was when I went, oh, there's a whole other way of being in relationship with life than I was taught and that I was modeled. So that's been my quest basically since I was 19, 20. I, back into the world. I noticed you went to school in Davis, California for your undergrad, right? I grew up in Davis, so I thought that was kind of fun. Um, and my mom, my mom was actually a professor of psychology there for a little while. Um, and I noticed also that you, uh, you had the, the opportunity to apprentice with Vicki Noble, um, who, if you guys aren't familiar listening, um, she's an incredible um, incredible shamanic healer, teacher, um, author of a book called Shakti Woman, which is another really, really great read if you're, if you're walking this path. Um, and as I was reading a little bit about your backstory and growing up in India and then um, those, those years of feminist study, I just felt like even more honored to be able to come into this space because I feel like you ha your life has been um, touched and woven with many um, teachers who who I've also had the opportunity to just read and learn. And I felt like, you know, without putting you on a pedestal, this sense of like, what an honor and privilege to come into this space of, um, I don't know if living master is appropriate or guru, but just this, an elder, right? An elder, not meaning your age, but like someone who has walked the wisdom for a while. Um, and you, you have three main paths that you identify as, as the, the ones that you're drawing from primarily in this blend, Toltec wisdom, European shamanism, and Buddhism. And so in your understanding of the feminine, I would, I'm, this is out of my own curiosity, and I also would like to share for our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with those paths or what they mean, 
Um, if you could share maybe from each of them, if there was some primary um, truths that really you've drawn that, that, that you uh, have made meaning from or what those each lineage has meant to you in this sacred feminine awakening. Mm, yeah, it's such a beautiful question. I'll start with European shamanism because that, you know, basically when I started studying different spiritual traditions, I'd already been immersed in Buddhism from growing up there. So that was in a way in my, almost in my DNA, just from the, the transmission about being around that culture. So I'll talk about that in a moment. But as, an, as a young adult, when I started studying European shamanism, I started there because I felt what were my ancestors up to? I'm of European descent. And so I was really just curious, where did my lineage come from? And what I uncovered when I went pre-Christian was an incredibly rich tradition of, of especially women healers and midwives and wise women that were deeply connected to the earth and men as well. But the, the women were the ones that were the most impacted when the witch hunt began in the 1800s, 1700s, actually 15, 16, 1700s. And during that time, there were thousands of women that were killed because of their beliefs. And really what the belief was, was stay connected to the earth, honor the cycles, honor the elements, really be in tune with nature. And so what I learned from studying that ancient wisdom was the importance of us to understand that everything is a cycle. There's beginnings and there's endings and to love both of them. And we tend to have, be in a culture that loves the beginnings, but not the endings. That loves linear more than the cyclical. So that really helped me come back into that softening into being in direct relationship with the earth and the seasons and the cycles. And yet, as I studied that tradition, I mean, I had amazing mentors, Vicki Noble, a woman named Caradon Falling Star. I also had the sense of, again, something was missing. I personally was missing something. I felt deeply nourished, but I also felt like there was something more. And that was when I had a dream about Don Miguel Ruiz, who's the author of The Four Agreements. And in my dream, basically, was very clear. There's a man that's going to come change your life. Mm -hmm. He's coming. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and here's a picture of him. And about a week later, and I remember thinking, right, I live in Davis, like it's a tiny town. Where am I going to meet this man? Mm -hmm. And a week later, someone came into my office and was like, oh my gosh, you have to meet this man. And my whole body went, oh no, I am not ready for this. Mm. And it literally took me a year to get ready to meet him because I knew my life was going to change drastically. And it did in a lot of beautiful ways. And I really feel like what that that coming in was a bringing in of the, the warrior. So we had the goddess energy that I'd found in European shamanism and a loving of the feminine and the, the divinity and the cycles. And the, the warrior of the Toltec, the Toltec were a group of people that came together in South and Central Mexico and Miguel's a direct descendant and was very lovingly passing the teachings on to, to the group of us that were apprenticing with him. And those teachings are so powerful of helping us the stories and agreements we make that us and how to free ourselves from those. So it felt like I, it gave me tools to create a huge transformation inside of myself. And then the Buddhist teachings, like that third thread is really around the awareness and the stillness practice that the Toltec and the Buddhists are very similar. As I was studying Toltec, I was like, wait a minute, this is just like Buddhism. 
because they're both inquiry practices of increasing awareness and presence. So those are the three main threads that I weave together. Thank you so much for that. So as you were speaking, I, you mentioned something, you mentioned that one of the promptings that um, led you to first examine European shamanism was the curiosity about your own ancestors and what their spiritual practice is, was. Um, do you feel like on the spiritual journey, knowing that each person's spiritual journey and spiritual walk is different, that there comes a point where finding that connection with and recognizing that this is not available for all people, that not all people have this access, being, being if we can, to find the lineage, that thread um, of, of the actual bloodline that we came from or the people who came before, do you think that's an important part of our practice? And if so, why? What, what do you feel like... Um, Cause, because I'm asking because I'm in that right now and I've actually always kind of felt like, oh yeah, like my people came from like Scotland and England and that's all I know and that's enough. Um, and in the last just three or four months, I've been doing really conscious work around unwinding white supremacy and I've realized how important it actually is for me to know where I came from, especially as we tend or steward practices that maybe come from um, different indigenous cultures, or like in my case, you know, I've been practicing and teaching yoga for 20 years, and, and that's uh, just awareness dawns that, oh, you know, these are borrowed uh, teachings or um, gifted, which is fine, but, but why do you feel like having that connection or awareness of where we come from um, is meaningful or important? I think it's really helpful for all people to to follow those lines of ancestry back and to see where our ancestors up to. And for some of us, we don't know where our ancestors are from or that we have many different trails, you know, many different places where, where we come from. I have a lot of friends that are, you know, black and Native American and uh, European. So it's not about you have to like find your lineage and that's the only teaching you're allowed to have is how I see it. But I do feel like, especially as Europeans, because we, we were so cut off from our history, most of us, and we didn't, don't realize how much persecution and how much trauma there was within our lineage. I think that's a really important piece to go back and reclaim. And also the wisdom of the teachings to have something that is from the soil of where our people come from is beautiful. And important and it honors the our ancestors and I think that also then allows us to honor other people's ancestors and be more respectful of other traditions that we might be stepping into that we're not feeling like I have to take because I have the right to take them but we feel nourished by our own soil and then we're like okay what can supplement this what is a powerful practice that is part of a lineage that's being offered freely Mm -hmm. I do see that there's some lineages that are like, please take the teachings and other lineages that are like, no, these are ours. And to have great respect for that, I think is really mm -hmm. valuable. Mm -hmm. Was the Toltec um, path one that was invitational and open and inviting people in? Or is that something that you really had to um, pursue and kind of kneel kneel down at that as an initiate and really ask to receive the teachings. You, you obviously had a prophetic dream. You knew this great teacher was coming into your life. The divine had already appointed that 
encounter and yet there was resistance there was the pushback of of your you know maybe ego or human self saying ah, i don't know if i'm ready for this um do you feel like it, the Toltec path was pursuing you and it was like really open and invitational and everybody could come or was it like you had to once you realized you were ready you had to really ask to receive those teachings I, miguel had a mission miguel had a very clear mission from his mother to bring the teachings out into the world. So she saw that for him as a young, at a young age and he fought it and then stepped into it. And so the time that I met Miguel, he was actively calling people in. Like a lot of us had dreamt about him. A lot of us had connected in other ways than kind of the normal way. And this was way before the book. There, like there was no book, nobody knew Miguel. He was just a, a person mm -hmm. and um, and so I do believe that he was fulfilling his mission and that there was a parallel line that that was part of my mission as well. And so it, there was a, a really beautiful invitation. And then there was intense work. So a lot of people dropped out. It was, you know, we were, those of us that stayed in, there was a lot of deep diving to do the work. So it wasn't a casual, like, this is great. We just get to do this. It was like, all right, we're going in. And so there was a lot of beauty with that. And also a lot of, what's the right word? Dedication that was required to step in. So, and forgive me any lack of knowledge. My ignorance is exactly that. I don't know what I don't know. Um, but I, I was reading... Um, that uh, many people in the 70s and 80s were introduced to Toltec philosophy through the writings of Carlos Castaneda. Um, and having read that as, you know, um, undergrad in literature, having read his um, book on the teachings of Don Juan, and whatever criticism came back around that text, and is it real or is it not real, it was this, um, and for those who haven't read it, it was this uh, book that was essentially a, a um, a thesis about um, shamanic work or um, uh, Mexican, it wasn't even Mexican, I think it was in New Mexico, um, shamanism, basically. And um, some people would say witchcraft and these esoteric or occult, meaning hidden, not, you know, evil um, teachings. And in that particular text, I'm recalling a story where um, where I think it was actually Don Juan turned into a crow and Carlos was witnessing him actually shapeshift. Um, and this is just the curious kitten in me wondering like, did you see magical things, Heather Ash? Did you have magical experiences? And if so, um, would you be so generous as to share one memory of that time? Yeah, I can say that when I first studied with Miguel, he, there, he was definitely shaman. He, was, he did a lot of acts of power. He taught us a lot of different things. Was, there were a lot of esoteric teachings as well. And as he grew in a way, like as the Four Agreements came out and as he grew, he started simplifying the message more and more and more and taking the superstition out and taking the shamanism out. So it was just common sense. And he used to always say that to it. This is just common sense. There's nothing, you know, different about this. It's just common sense, which is really true. That's why I love the Toltec work so much is it's so practical. Mm -hmm. 
And there's also, as we grow our energy, as we stop leaking energy and as we start to focus, your, your impact on the environment can be really high and what you can transform and change because of your awareness and your energy. And so I witnessed Miguel do a lot of kind of miracle things that he stopped doing later on because he realized that people were getting caught by the phenomena mm. rather than doing the work, basically. Mm-hmm. But there was a time, I'll just share, there was a time when we were in Peru and there was a storm way far away and Miguel was playing the lightning. And he would point to the sky exactly where the lightning would strike. And then mm. he the sky and the lightning would strike. <laughs> and, and he was showing other people how to do this. And just to witness that, like to stand back and to watch this man in very deep relationship with nature and deep mm-hmm. respect with nature was phenomenal. Mm. And the, the teachings, you know, so many people read Carlos Castaneda and were like, what? Like, there's something in here, but what is going on? Because there was so much uh, intensity in those teachings. Mm-hmm. And, and Don Juan used a lot of fear to help Carlos wake up. And I used to, I always realized about Miguel that Miguel's tool was love. Mm. He was deeply dedicated to unconditional love. And that has been really the biggest gift that I've received from him is the focus on choosing love over fear. Heather Ash, you shared a moment ago that that Miguel was very committed to his mission and his mission was to bring these teachings into the world. And you, you then said that there came a point where there was overlap between your mission and his mission. I would love to know if you can elucidate what you feel your life mission is for our listeners. Mm. I feel like my, my mission is to help people get free of limitations of fear of self-criticism of self-doubt to really come back into alignment with their essence and be able to share from their creativity and intuition rather than from the story and the burdens of the past and so because the Toltec teachings have made such a huge impact in my life because they're so practical I feel like now my work is to share the Toltec teachings through a feminine lens through the eyes of female to, to really open up uh, a new paradigm for all of us. I think you're doing that really well. At least that's certainly like you, you fulfilled that mission in the way that you activated me through warrior goddess training. And I, I just flipped open to a page. Um, one of the early chapters in the book is uh, called commit to you. And um there's a page that I opened to today that I actually just shared on social media because it feels especially appropriate for the time. Um, and so in full transparency, we're recording this in late March. This will probably come out in mid-April. Um, and as many of you are aware, globally, the coronavirus um, has spread as a pandemic. And right now we're experiencing a lot of change. A um, Some will call it a collective awakening. Some will call it a rebirth. Um, some are operating from more of a perspective of this is a disaster. This is something scary. But I opened it and um, you had written, have you ever had your world turned upside down in an instant or struggled to realign with a big change in your life? or wished that some aspect of your life would shift. Being in physical form means that you are constantly invited to adjust to change, whether joyous or frightening. 
And it goes on to say, change is inevitable, but transformation is by conscious choice. While you do not always have control over how or when the changes will occur in your life, you can choose how you are in relation to those changes. And that felt more, tr I mean, it's true, I think, in a timeless way. Um, but today, as I was reading that, I shared it with the community because I felt like this is really what we're facing right now is an opportunity to choose to react or to respond. Um, we're being invited in a very clear way to slow down, um, to go inward, to uh, consider the way that we engage with the natural environment, to consider our um, carbon footprint, or maybe we're not even considering it, but most people are driving less. We're not flying on planes and we're seeing, um, even though this is very early stages of this, we're seeing real shifts happen. And now I'll admit that I'm in a progressive liberal information bubble. And so I am seeing, you know, the Venice canals, dolphins are swimming in them. I'm seeing the, the, the um, pollution is clearing over the Wuhan province in China. I'm seeing, um, wildlife deers are roaming through the streets in Japan. And I feel um, that nature is giving us an invitation to approach change in a new way. Um, and I'm trying to see if there's an actual question here, but I think I would just love to open it to, in light of what is happening, which seems to be this big shift how do you, what is your perspective on this? Or what is your invitation for listeners in how to potentially shift their perspective, especially if their perspective is currently one of, um, and with deep respect to them, one of suffering or victimhood, perhaps they know somebody that's been affected or they're affected themselves, or they're feeling fear of getting sick. What is your invitation around um, how we can how we can shift what we can shift, which is within us as we embrace this situation. Yeah, it's a great question. And, and just like you're saying, we, we all have to understand that we're having, people are having very different experiences. So my experience is really different than somebody who has four kids that are at home and is trying to figure out how they're going to feed them for the next month, you know, for example. So with respect for everyone's experience that anytime there's a challenge, any kind of challenge, and here we are in a big challenge that we're all being faced with to some degree or another, we have opportunity of how we're gonna be in response to it. And challenges can strengthen us, they can help us get more centered, they can help us to get clear about what our priorities are and what our morals are, or they can destabilize us and cause us to lose more energy and cause us to go into fear. And at any moment, there's choice of what we're going to do. And the more that we can face the obstacle, because right now the obstacle is a big one for many people, financial, uh, emotionally, resource-wise, there's a lot of places that it's hitting us to stay with not going into disaster mind, not going into worst case scenario, not going into what's going to happen, but to stay with today to stay with this week where do i want to put my in where do i want to put my energy and i also feel like there's an incredible invitation for us to face our fears because there's the fear of i might get it or my beloved might get it or i might die or my econ the economy might collapse but we also are all 
have the, again, an invitation to face all the fears that we have. And so often we run from the fears. And so the fear of, I'm going to be abandoned, I'm not enough, I have to be perfect, all of that is always at play, but we often ignore it. And it has huge ramifications on us. So the places that we're avoiding those voices in our head or the fears that we have cause us to lose energy. And so here we are like, okay, sit, stay, turn around and face the fears. And not just the fear of this situation, but what are you running from in your life? What are the, those deeper seated fears? And we have an incredible opportunity right now to start to clear those out as well. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. <laughs> Isn't it funny how things can actually be simple, but not easy? Exactly. Yes. I, I believe um, that this is relevant to what you're teaching in your newest book, uh, The Warrior Heart Practice. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you're, you're talking about how we can take stock of our current emotional and mental state to reframe a situation in a new light. Do you yeah, feel like that has relevance to, I mean, to facing fear, whatever the fear is? It has so much rev relevance right now. I mean, the book came out in January and I'm like, what incredible timing because mm. it's a really simple and yet a profound tool for helping us to separate out emotions from the story, story from the truth and get clear about what our intent is so that we can go back into our world in a really different way. For most of us in our day-to-day -day world, the emotional body and the stories get tied together. So we tell ourselves a story that causes an emotion. We feel the emotion, then we tell more of a story. And you can go back and forth between the emotions and the story forever, basically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so they get really tied together. And the stories also get tied together. And it's like, if you have a bunch of um, cords or a necklace, I was just laughing because literally I have my computer cord, my microphone cord, and another cord for my camera. And I just walked from the house, which is two minutes here, and they were all tangled up. And I'm like, really? Like, how is this even possible? But that's what the stories do. If you don't pay attention to them, they start tying themselves in knots. And what can be like a simple, like, pay attention to this suddenly is this mass of knots that feels really confusing and really scary and really big. And so to separate the emotions from the stories means that we're willing to start separating the stories out and really look at what am I feeling separate from what am I telling myself? I and feel that's, like, that's, yeah, go ahead. It sounds simple, but it's, it's a practice to learn how to do that, how to feel without telling yourself the story and how to tell yourself the story, be honest about what story you're telling yourself without letting the emotions take you out. Yeah, I feel like a really practical and applicable example of this for people um, is like when we get in an argument with our lover or partner or it could be a family member and for whatever reason, a wound is activated or one of our um, you know, areas that's maybe not completely healed is activated and then we have a have feeling um, and we go into the story and the story often is you always or you never or, and then we start pulling it's like I see the weaving of the threads yes. of like we start weaving all of these things together that actually have very little to do with anything um, in fact my husband and I have been really working on this because one of my um, 
operating systems is defensiveness. I have, I struggle with behavioral criticism or I have historically. And so there might be a specific thing that he does, that he says, you know, that I did that he doesn't like or appreciate, or he would like me to do it differently. And I hear, um, I don't love you. You're a bad wife. You're a bad mother. You know, you're, that's <laughs> like, yeah. I've really been working on understanding where this is coming from. And we had a beautiful breakthrough the other day where I was actually for the first time able to explain to him that what's happening inside me is that I sense that he believes that I'm doing it wrong, that I'm, that I'm, um, that I'm doing it wrong, basically. And, and so many of our arguments have come from that space. And so I, I asked him, I said, you know, would you be willing to next time um, we start to head into this tangle of the cords, if you will, would you be willing to ask me, babe, do you feel like I think you're doing it wrong? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and he was like, and he said, yes, I will. Yes, I will ask you that question. And so we've been practicing that and it is, it's so helpful. Um, and so this intersection of feeling, story, truth, and intent, these are the four chambers that you outline in the warrior heart practice. Can you, with you, maybe one of your examples or, or the one I just shared, either way, can you explain to us a little bit about how we can use these um, identifiers to help us do this emotional and mental state reframe so that we can stop being in the big clusterfuck of chords. It's a beautiful story. It's so great because you started realizing what your story was. Mm -hmm. This is what was being asked. So yeah, I can give a couple of examples. The, the first example is a really simple one. And it's one that a lot of us have had experience with, which is around, let's say you have a friend, or it's easy to conceptualize. Let's say you have a friend that's late all the time. And that every time they're late, you have a big emotional reaction of they don't respect me. If they really cared about me, they would show up on time. They think they're more important. That, like whatever the story is. Mm. Okay. And then the emotion that comes. Maybe you feel abandoned. Maybe you feel um, not loved. Whatever the thing is. All right. Mm -hmm. So you always start the practice with where am I? Tr where is there a trigger or a place that I'm confused? And the first mm -hmm. question is, what am I feeling? And this is separate from what you're telling yourself. And when you start with the feeling chamber, what you're going for is not to try and fix or change or even understand what you're feeling to just be with feelings. So let's say your friend is late and you're sitting there waiting for them. You would just close your eyes and take a breath and go, hey, sweetheart, what's going on? What are you feeling? And then track your body. What's going on in your body? What's the, what are the emotions that are arising? And no judgment, not trying to fix it, not trying to defend it, just this is what's going on. So maybe you feel anxious and there's, you notice there's a flutter in your chest. And then you feel that sense of scared and out of control. And that's in your belly. And then you notice that, um, yeah, those might be the beginning. So you just feel that. You just breathe. That's it. Just be there. And then you step into the story chamber. And the question is, what am I telling myself right now? What's the story? And then you hang out with the story. And you have to be willing to dig and to be honest, because sometimes we want to make the story like pretty. 
Mm. or not tell ourselves exactly what we're saying, but you have to go, where am I criticizing? Where am I judging? Where am I upset? And so what you might find is I feel disrespected. I feel like nobody ever listens to me. And you realize there's an old thread of childhood, of feeling because you were the youngest kid. I'm just totally making stuff up now. Mm -hmm. But because you were the youngest kid, nobody ever listened to you and everybody paid attention to you. You're like, oh, wow, this isn't just about my friend being late. Now I'm in my story of nobody listens to me and nobody cares about me. Okay, so Mm -hmm. that's information. And then you would step into the truth chamber. And the question is, what's true here? So you really settle into what do I know is true? And the first piece of truth is my friend is late, period. (laughs) That's it. Uh Okay. Anything after that story. So you got to stay with what's true. My friend is late, period. So what is true is kind of like just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. Just the facts. facts. (laughs) Okay. And, And to understand, like you may be like, I feel upset. That's true right now. That's subjective truth. It's going to change. Mm-hmm. So you can name that, but understand that's just a subjective truth that's around this particular moment. And sometimes what happens when you go into the truth chamber is you realize you're actually not correct. Like your friend was late this time and last time, but they've been on time every other time. Mm -hmm. So you start to look at what's actually true here Mm -hmm. and explore it. And then the, the fourth chamber is the intent chamber. What do you want in this situation? So it's not what you want the other person to do. It's what are you willing to commit to? One word, one quality. So your word might be presence. It might be compassion. It might be truth-telling. The word can be anything. You don't need to know how you're going to manifest your intent. You just want to name the intent. And then you go back into the truth chamber and look at what's true here. So now you have, I think about it, you have these two allies. My intent, which is compassion, and my truth, which is my friend was late, I feel upset, period. Okay. And then you go back into the story chamber. And this is where you can start totally transforming your relationship with the story. Because now you have these allies that are helping you look with different eyes and keep separate from the feeling so you can make new choices and just decide what you're going to do next. And there's no right answer. You may realize, okay, compassion, I need to be compassionate for myself. So I'm going to ask my friend if they're late to text me beforehand, and that'll help me not feel anxious. Mm-hmm. Um, or you might say, you know what? It's fine if they're late. I actually don't care if they're late. I'm just going to make sure I bring a book to read. Or you might say to yourself, I'm just going to show up a half hour late to everything. <laughs> okay, so you get creative in how you're going to be in response. And you also can clarify agreements, make up a game with your friend. I mean, there's all sorts of possibilities. And then you end with, how do I feel? And it doesn't, just because you go through the process, it doesn't necessarily feel like you're going to mean that you're going to feel joyous and happy and relieved. You may still feel grief because you've, let's say you've uncovered this deeper grief that you have around feeling like you were never seen. So then, then you might want to do that, the practice with that, or just sit with yourself and say, okay, sweetie, I see you. I'm here. Hmm. But you're, you're really changing your relationship with yourself and taking responsibility for the emotions and the story without shutting them down and also without cycling them. So there's a mm-hmm. simple example. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I like that it, it, um, it comes full circle that you're bringing it back to how do I feel so that we can have this um, 
reflection or this measure of of change and understanding how we are we are so powerful we have the ability to just in that short practice to actually transform ourselves um and you mentioned that you said we can get really creative and and i think you have a very special relationship with creativity you are an author you are an artist um and and this is kind of a side segue, but I'm just I'm I'm curious because I I know I that we have a lot of listeners who are um, entrepreneurs and creatives and visionaries, and I'm curious about your creative process. You've written quite a few books, um, and I'm guessing you've probably created other things. You founded um, uh, your institute, um, which I'd love to hear a little bit about about that. But your creative process um what is it like and do you have any any tips for us in activating or enlivening creativity in our own lives especially during this lovely period where people have some people not all people some people have time on their hands and energy that needs to be redirected how do we get more creative heather ash yeah to to really recognize everybody is creative that I love this. The, the word Toltec means artist of the spirit. Mm-hmm. What we're learning how to do is, is really craft who we are and that that's our art. And one of the things I love teaching people around is how to be creative when a challenge arises, because that's what we need is to, to draw on that creativity and that willingness to step out of what's known to, to look at possibility. And I'd say that came from me, for me, no, when I, I'll just say this, when I wrote my first book, which was many years ago, and I'd always, I'd always written, like I always knew I was going to write a book, but when I sat down in my thirties to write a book, it was like, the first draft was terrible. <laughs> I remember like, I'd sit down every day and I'd like write the certain amount of, you know, words that I was supposed to write. And I went and read it and I was like, this is terrible. Like it really was. And so I had to play with myself of like, how do I relax to let the information come through rather than forcing and pushing? Mm-hmm. And I really learned that myself. if I'm trying to force or push something, it doesn't work. And what I started doing is playing games with myself. And this is how I taught myself to be creative is in order to be creative, you have to give yourself per- permission to make mistakes and to be messy. And so that giving myself permission, because I was very much a perfectionist. And what I started doing was just tracking my writing process. And I created a spreadsheet and I would check myself in and check myself out. And I just learned how much I distracted myself, what worked over time. And I was willing to stay with it and learn what I needed and what I needed to set myself up to be successful, how to hold myself. And it's just been a process. And now it's pretty lovely because once I'm in the writing energy, it, takes, it can take me a while to get in there. Um, but I know what I need to do, like dance parties, lots of long walks, cleaning my house, like the prep. And now I can go in, like I can be sitting on a bus and work on a book. I can be in a, pa- a plane. I can be you know, pretty much anywhere because I can tap into the flow now. But it's just a practice of doing that and getting out of my own way, really. Hmm. Okay. I'm over here taking notes. <laughs> um, so, and I'm just, this is just, again, sheer curiosity. Um, you are in tune with nature cycles and I would guess um, your own cycles. And um, when 
um, were you attuned to your menstrual cycle or are you attuned to it? And is it part of, do you notice correlations between it and your creative energy? Um, do you feel like there's a certain time where you're more inclined to write and produce and create and times that you're more inclined to rest and go inward? Asking for a friend. JK, <laughs> really? asking for myself. <laughs> Well, what I found when I was cycling is that my cycle would, would switch about every six months. It was fascinating to just watch. Of like, I'd mm -hmm. bleed, I would bleed on the new moon, and then at some point it would switch, and I'd start bleeding on the full moon. Mm -hmm. And I never found a rhyme or reason for that. It was just fascinating to, to watch that happen. And what I found is that in the beginning of the cycle, once I, once I was moving towards ovulation, there was a lot of energy to create and to flow and to let things through me. And then as I got closer to bleeding, it was a great time to edit. Okay, so like I became a lot more like, like truth teller, you know, I'm, I'm going in. And so I would work those cycles. And that's one of the biggest things I learned about writing is somebody once said, don't write and edit. You either write or you edit. They're two different parts of your brain. And I didn't understand that for a while, but I found that to be really true. And I would use my cycles around that of like, this is a creative time, just write, download, let it come through. And then at other times of my cycle, it would be edit, go in and cut what doesn't fit. Because I was a lot more ruthless. Yeah, that. it's uh, that luteal phase heading into menstruation is that time of the inner critic. And man use it to she's she's good at that yeah i'm on yeah, day 19 right now of a 24-day cycle and this morning i woke up really feeling her presence and i was like welcome back thank you for hello, being here <laughs> hello sweetheart that's hello, what i'm from now and hello sweetheart um <laughs> so so Heather Ash, I know that there i mean i believe i could probably interview you for hours because you you're just such a wealth of of wisdom um is there a way for people to learn and study with you in person? I know you, you've written a lot of amazing books and that right now, you know, we've linked um, in the show notes below all of her books, um, but especially the Warrior Heart Practice, which is new and I think really something that, you know, it would benefit us to read right now. Um, also, Warrior Goddess Training to all my Sacred Feminine listeners. But um, if we want to go deeper with you, are there any opportunities to study with you? Again, asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> I do a lot of workshops. I do Warrior Goddess workshops, uh, Sedona, Austin, different places. I do different apprenticeship programs, both online and live. So there's a lot of opportunity. I take journeys to Mexico with people. And so, yeah, I have a lot. I love interacting with people and bringing community together. It's one of my favorite things. So either online or live, there's lots of options and places to connect in. And you mentioned, you mentioned Austin, and I think you, you're, you're coming to me from um, New Mexico or Santa Fe. You like the desert. Do you have a special affinity for the desert, a relationship <laughs> with the desert? I don't so much. It's kind of, that's really true. Um, you know, the truth is I live on the road. I'm based out of Santa Fe just because it's convenient right now, but I really live on the road. I'm in my trailer right now in San Antonio, and uh, I was going to be in California and then in Sedona, but now I'm here. So I just have an affinity for the earth. Mm. I pretty much love everywhere that I'm at. They're all so different and diverse. 
Mm -hmm. With that affinity for the earth, I think, you know, I'd like to circle back to just awareness of what's happening right now. And um, you've been in this deep uh, reciprocal relationship with this earth for a long time, as actually we all are. It's just some of us are not aware of that sacred reciprocity. Um, do you have any guidance or suggestions, whether people are living urban or rural or you know city or nature, um, any suggestions for real practical ways that we can deepen our connection with the earth uh, right now, especially as um, the relationship between the earth and us is so, um, I don't want to say tenuous, but like she's suffering, we're suffering. What are some ways that we can come into more of that allyship or partnership with, with her um, that people can actually do? right? It could be as simple as like get a house plant and tend it or like build a garden box. But what are some of the ways coming from all of this knowledge that you have from the Toltec um, tradition and from European shamanism, how can we actually make connection with the earth? Yeah, one simple way. I mean, I love that. Yeah, get plants, go sit outside under a tree. Those places of being in nature as much as possible, being out as much as possible, but also recognizing that all of us can deepen our relationship with the elements. So in, in all tribal societies, there, there's reverence for the elements. And in European shamanism, it's four elements. It's air, fire, water, and earth. And if one of those elements was missing, there would be no life. So they're the foundational building blocks of life. And air, every time you take a breath, to have gratitude for this air, for this oxygen that keeps us alive, to honor the wind, to open up to just that invisible force that is life-sustaining. And for fire, to honor the sun, to honor electricity. Like every time you turn a light on, thank you so much, because that's fire. That's that element of fire that's sustaining us every time you light a candle. And to also honor the, the heat of our body, which is connected to fire. And then water, how much of us is water? And every time you wash your hands, which is a lot these days, so you can have lots of connection with water, right? <laughs> um, and the rain, like I woke up this morning, it was raining and I went, I just walked outside in my nightgown and just like, mm. thank you, it was so beautiful to just feel that cleansing and that beauty. And the earth, our to honor the physical body, to honor that connection to the, to the earth as well. The trees, the animals, the four-leggeds, the creepy crawlies, to, to go back into gratitude into our relationship with earth. And just by getting still and pondering and listening to how can I deepen my respect for the elements that will bring you in touch, whether you're in an apartment in New York city or you're in the wild someplace, those elements are always around us and within us. Mm, that was so, so helpful and so relevant to people, no matter where they are. Thank you for that. Okay, well, I have these 800 more questions. I'll have to save them for next time. But um, we normally do a book club. And so I would normally ask you a recommendation. But today I'm going to give the recommendation and I'm going to say go and get a copy of the Warrior Heart Practice um, and, and put it into practice in your life. I think all of us, um, I know that all of us have unlimited opportunity to... Um, 
use these four chambers and this practice to really reframe. Um, no matter where we are, no matter how much spiritual work we've done, there's always there seems to be always more cords to untangle. <laughs> yes. um, so that's linked below, as is Warrior Goddess Training, just because it made such a deep impact in my life. And I, I, I know many of my listeners are excited about learning more about Divine Feminine and Sacred Feminine. Um, and the last thing I think I want to ask you today, because I do have a lot of um, listeners who uh, are women or female identifying or non-binary and who um, really struggle with um, what you mentioned very early on in the show, self, um, self-hatred, doubt, judgment of self. Um, we're just still really struggling to actually um, even acknowledge that they have power, much less step into that power. And um, I just like to ask, you know, if, 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 if we were meeting and I was in that place of, of feeling really, um, broken and down on myself and, and just, um, in the struggle of not feeling my power, do you have any sage words of wisdom or advice or encouragement to, to speak to that woman's heart right now? Hmm. Two pieces. One is to remember that we're part of a larger dream and just like a little bit over a hundred years ago, women didn't have a right to vote in this country. And it wasn't until the sixties that women of color had the right to vote. So this is really new that women have had a lot of external freedom. You know, two, three, four generations back, we had very limited options. And what we were told basically is you're not smart enough. You don't deserve men are better. Like there's all this programming that we still carry. So women tend to think, oh, this is me. I'm, you know, I'm not worthy. I'm critical of myself because I deserve to be. But if you can step back and just realize you're programmed, there's a, a larger story that is not true, that if we can not take what we're, our own personal stuff personally, <laughs> I don't know how to say that well, but that so often what we're carrying is not ours, period. And so that can often help women to step back and realize, oh, I'm doing this work for all women. And that it's not just you, it's something that we as women have been taught and that we're in the middle of shifting a paradigm. And so it can get messy right now as we, as we make that transition. And the other thing is to learn how to treat yourself, to start practicing treating yourself as you would treat your best friend. Because so often we make a mistake and we judge ourselves so harshly but if your same, if your best friend had made the same mistake, you'd be like, "Oh, sweetie, don't. It's fine. You know, it's not that big of a deal. Let's get, let's clean it up and move on." And so to to find that, to realize you already know how to do it because you probably are very compassionate with the people you love, but very not compassionate with yourself. And so that just takes practice of learning to bring those qualities back to yourself. And I think about it: if you're learning, it, if you're teaching a child how to walk what qualities would you bring that to that child? And you'd bring patience, compassion, cheerleading them, knowing they were gonna fall down and get back up. And that as humans, we are gonna fall down and get back up. And what we need is to learn how to cheerlead ourselves, to put a hand out when we fall down, to have patience with ourselves as we navigate in new ways. 
Thank you so much for that. I know you guys have fallen in love with Heather Ash, and I know you'd love to connect with her further. So um, please go say hello to her on Instagram at Heather Ash Amara. That's linked in the show notes below. Um, you can also find her on the web. I believe it's the same, heatherashamara.com. And you can get access to um, her books and her programs. Heather Ash, thank you so much. Your presence is so, um, it's just so good for the soul. Like you really truly radiate um, divine love and it's and in a very grounded way. So I'm so thankful to have had this opportunity to connect with you. And I hope that all of you can feel that. And as it reverberates out through these airwaves that you're able to just uh, connect and, and to feel comforted knowing that even in the midst of all of this change and uncertainty and rebirth, um, that we have we have people we can look to who are holding it down <laughs> and, um, and who can guide us and, and who can do that by reflecting to us who we are uh, and that we all have this capability to find a deep wellspring um, of steadiness in the midst of the never-ending chaos that is being human. <laughs> so true. Thanks so much, Amelia. It was great it's, to be interviewed by you and with you and thanks for all that you share with your podcast and all that you share in the world much gratitude yeah it was a joy and we'll see you guys in the next episode thank you so much for hanging out with me on another episode of women awake podcast if you love today's show if it impacted you in some way Please grab a screenshot right now and share to Instagram stories tagging Amelia Travis and Women Awake. Each month, I'll choose someone who's shared and send you a gift as a thank you for being part of this incredible community. It's your support that makes this show possible. So if you do love us, please subscribe, share with a friend, or head to iTunes right now to leave me an honest review. And until next time, keep showing up, telling the truth, and remember that everything is an instrument for our awakening.